You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness, and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness and physiology right now. Welcome. I am Dr. Carla Brown. I am one of the leaders of MDED 400 Physician Wellness through the Transcendental Meditation Technique. For this year's fourth of six lectures, we are delighted to welcome Dr. Tony Nader. Dr. Nader is a physician who trained at Harvard and MIT, a neuroscientist and expert in the experience and understanding of consciousness. Dr. Nader inherited the mantle of leader of the Transcendental Meditation Organization from Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who brought this technique to the world. Dr. Nader, it is an honor to welcome you. Would you like to say a few words before we introduce our panel of students and our Dr. Sarah Wagner? Just to express my joy for the program and congratulate you and the students the results have been wonderful throughout the years and continue to be very inspiring. And it's our joy to be able to offer this knowledge that helps students and doctors and the general public to uh, have stability within strengths, clarity, and live their fullness of life. So it's my joy to participate. Thank you so much. And now I will introduce our first student, and thereafter, each person will introduce themselves. Our first student is Mike Pullen. Hey, Dr. Nader. Hope you're well. Uh, my name is Mike Pullen. I'm a M1 here at Loyola. I'm from Princeton, New Jersey. And my question to you was, how did you first become involved in TM, and what impacts did it have on your life then versus the impacts it has on your life now? I was a pre-medical student when I started TM, and I was in circumstances of civil war. It was a big pressure on me, and I then discovered transcendental meditation. It helped me to be able to face the stress and strain of studying in circumstances that are complicated. And I guess many of you have had to be in COVID situation and study and all that. And so it's not very different. And at that time, it just gave me the ability to be more rested, to focus better, study better, and have a greater ability to handle the situations that are around me. Today, it's grown up on me and has become part of my daily routine. And one way to go back to the self and really experience higher states of consciousness and know that it's not just for relaxation, for stress release, but to really develop one's full potential and the ability to enjoy life and enjoy how one deals with others in a creative, fulfilling way. So these are a few highlights. It has been tremendous for me, and that's why I wanted to share it with everyone and make sure that all those who are interested in living the fullness of life learn this technology of consciousness. Fantastic. Thank you. Hi, Dr. Nader. My name is Dr. Sarah Wagner. I am an obstetrician gynecologist here at Loyola. 
thank you to Carla and to Duncan for introducing TM to me about eight years ago now. I was recruited to a randomized control trial on the effect of TM on physicians and functional MRI. It was really um, interesting to be part of the study. And of course, it has affected me in uh, a long-term way because I'm continuing to practice TM at this time. I have really um, enjoyed TM because it's it's helped me kind of understand a little bit about the way I process stress. And I found that I'm a lot more flexible and resilient and patient when I'm consistently practicing. And so it's it's given a lot to me and to my family of three kids and a busy life. I recently just listened to you read your own book, One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness. And I, it was very impactful to me. And I'm I'm not sure how many in the audience have listened to it or read it, but I I found that in a lot of the questions I had about religion and spirituality were kind of answered in your in your book. And I I'd love to hear a little bit about how you learned all the things that you described in your book related to the way consciousness is all there is. And we're all very connected in that way because I, I felt that deeply even since reading your book. Is there time for that question? It's a long one. Yeah. I mean, it's, of course, as you say, it's a topic that can take hours and takes a book to really kind of grab the idea. But in simple terms, in a relative way, there are different paradigms about the ultimate reality, whether it is material, physical energy that then comes together to create a complex association of physical and then material components and then they create the nervous system and then the nervous system has the ability to be conscious and therefore consciousness is an emergent quality. This we would call the physicalist point of view which means those who in philosophy believe that everything is physical and that everything that is spiritual or consciousness related is secondary or emerges from the assemblage of physical material aspects. There is another point of view which says that there are two realities. There is one which is physical and one which is non-physical. And this is usually the general acceptance by most religions or belief systems in the sense that they separate supernatural reality, which is related to consciousness, the spirit, the mind, dancing things that are abstract, and then the physical, which has been created by that supernatural reality, supernatural power. Now, you can have a third option, which is that consciousness is primary, that there is something actually non-material that itself then appears in different ways as physical and material. This is much harder to kind of support in a sense and accept because we are so much through our senses sure about the physicality of things and their essential nature that, you know, anything that has what they called idealist perspective, which means that ideas come first or consciousness comes first, is very hard to support. So in short, how I came to the conclusion is by looking at all the possible options of answers to 
fundamental questions of life about existence, about suffering, is about freedom, about determinism, about laws of nature, and about the possibilities of mathematics and physics and their diving into what ultimate reality is and finding that actually, even from a physics perspective, you reach what is called a unified field. Ultimately, that is what is being contemplated by the theoretical physicists. And that those great physicists have found quantum mechanics and quantum field theories gradually unifying all of this phenomena that are not really explainable, such as entanglement, such as what is called action at a distance, what is called non-locality of events, non-locality of elementary particles, and therefore they can be present with certain probabilities in different places, and how these different probabilities collapse into one probability, into one actual reality when there is an observation process. And all of these things together gave me this assurance that actually consciousness is primary. Now, the contribution, if you like, has been to explain how is it possible that something that is non-physical, non-material, such as consciousness, can then itself manifest as the physical and the material. See, in modern times of research on consciousness, there has been coined the idea of the hard problem of consciousness. And the idea was that we will ultimately be able to know all the mechanics by which the brain works and the nervous system works. And although this is extremely complicated in terms of cognition and feeling and all of that, it can be worked out. And this has been called the easy problem of consciousness, which means the easy problem of understanding the mechanics of how you hear, how you listen, how you smell, how you feel, what happens on the neuronal level, which chemicals are activated, which neurotransmitters, which electrical activities, you know, and with computer simulations, you can tell what is the counterpart of a thought or a feeling. And that's called the easy problem. The hard problem is how you get your personal subjective experience, which is totally non-physical, non-material, in the sense that it's something different than matter. It's a personal, what they call qualia, or a sense of subjectivity. Even pain or joy or love or even the sense of color, how do they get there? And so this is the hard problem of how the physical can create consciousness, which is non-physical. And this problem has not been at all solved, even though there are big minds trying to work on it. There are postulates about quantum mechanical effects, etc. Now, what I am proposing is that consciousness is primary, and this is not new as a proposal. It has been described in the Vedantic literature thousands of years ago, and many idealists, you know, Platonic philosophy, Socratic, and many others, Leibniz, and many other great minds. Spinoza is one big one. 
they have proposed that consciousness can be more fundamental. And today there are many also who come along and say, well, it must be something like that. What my contribution, I feel, is to explain how this consciousness appears as matter and what are the sequential possibilities that allow us to explain that and how we can support that logic through phenomena that we observe and answers that we can give to existential realities such as why we are here, how we come about, what is the purpose of life, do we have freedom or not, why do we suffer, what is sin, what is good, what is bad, how does it relate to the physical universe. So these are big philosophical questions and again it will be complex to try to attend even to attempt to answer them in a short time but this I guess is an overview of the points that I would suggest in terms of answer to your question. Thank you. Hello, my name is Sophia. I'm a first year medical student from PBD, Massachusetts, and I've been meditating for six months. And through meditation, I found a deeper unity within myself. This has allowed me to communicate clearer and to make decisions in a way that's more reflective of who I am, which has grounded me in my identity especially as I'm in my medical training and in my relationships. And I'm wondering if you could speak about the unity you experience in meditation and how that's impacted your identity as both a doctor and just a person. It's similar to yours. And as I continue to meditate, my sense of self and connectedness with others has expanded from being just my personal identity on a small self level, which is my name, my profession, my family connections, my life as an individual, my purpose and my protection of myself, into expanding the understanding and the feeling of oneness with everything. And that leads to the feeling of everything is ultimately myself. Everything is oneself. And then when you see the joys of others, you are experiencing joy yourself. When you see something else happening that is not ideal, you want to improve it. You want to contribute to it. You want to show the way of the experiencing ultimate reality as a field of being, the field of being, which I call the ocean of consciousness, that actually manifests as the different waves and that if we go beyond the surface value we experience something which is very deep and which expands our understanding of ourself to know that all the waves are also the ocean are part of the ocean and that we can have harmony and peace and prosperity and well-being and health from that ocean level which are much more fulfilling than being trapped on the surface level. So there is a process, a process of gradually removing the prejudice, the stresses, the obstacles, the narrow vision that have been accumulating in our awareness 
as we grow and we are given, you know, kind of comments on us, you are like this, you can do this. As we experience life and we see shortcomings sometimes and success some other times, and we identify ourselves through these aspects, when we transcend deeply and gradually, transcend means go beyond those aspects and start experiencing the ocean rather than the waves. So there is a process of in which first transcendental meditation gives ability to concentrate, to sleep better, decrease in anxiety, sense of calmness, ability to perform better. And these are side benefits, I would call them. But ultimately, what happens is a realization of a self that is bigger than we ever thought. And that's how you start knowing yourself. And that's a great wisdom of life, know thyself. You start loving yourself because you see yourself as all the good and all the unbounded being, expanded greatness that you know everyone is aiming at. And that gives you inner fulfillment without removing the desire to act on the outside. Because what has been often misunderstood is that this inner self-stability and fulfillment might lead to less interest in activity, less interest in others. And what happens is to the contrary, you are everything and now you taking care of others and participating in creativity, participating in the evolution of life, in the evolution of society, in discoveries, in removing pain, in removing illness, uh, becomes part of doing it for yourself in a sense, because yourself has expanded. And so it's not about being less self-concentrated, but it is about expanding the sense of self that is helpful. And so this also answers a very fundamental question about selfishness or not selfishness, altruistic behavior. And people say you should not be selfish. Of course, one should be altruistic, but there is a strain that happens sometimes. And when one feels what is one's own benefit personally versus helping others, for example. And if one's concept of the self is limited, this is when self selfness, if you like, becomes a problem. But if the sense of self expands, then you can still feel you're doing something for yourself, but yourself is so much bigger that it is practically an automatic altruistic taking into consideration others and not only others, the environment, the world, the future, and expanding one's vision from a short-term, narrow perspective to a long-term, wide perspective, embracing life and embracing all that there is as part of yourself. And that's the beauty of what it is. And that is, you can be self-full and you can at the same time be most altruistic. Hi, Dr. Nader. My name is Vivek Gandhi and I'm from Chicago, Illinois. I'm also a first year medical student here at Stritch. As medical students, it can become difficult to balance our academic goals with our personal commitments. How does meditation and the act of transcending help us to control our desires as well as to fulfill them? 
it is not really trying to control from a small, fearful or small perspective in the sense that I have to make decisions about when do I attend to something personal and when do I attend to something which has a bigger perspective. And this usually sorts itself out when you have greater clarity in thinking and in decision-making, and then the ability to fulfill the desires at the same time to attend to one's responsibilities and one's duties. And so you know that when you wake up on a day where you have not rested well in the night, then you have more of these issues of selecting and deciding, you know, and personal desires might be the requirement to rest, the requirement to sleep, the requirement to enjoy things and to have pleasures of life. At the same time, then on the other side, you have the responsibility to work, to study, to do your homework, to be able to attend to yourself and to grow. And so all of these values are much more easy to handle when there is clarity in one's thinking and when there is less stress in one's physiology and mind. And sometimes personal desires and all that can be modified or can be different based on what we've been exposed to, on prejudice, on even advertising or what we heard and the sense of priority and what others say and expectations from others. So not everything that is a personal desire is always coming from a true impulse of creativity and force of evolution. It can sometimes be due to stress and strain. And so by transcending, you remove those stresses and strains and you see greater clarity and decision-making, and then you can truly fulfill the desires that are most progressive in terms of your higher goals and those that are a reaction to just stress or strain or fear and all of that. So this is how transcendental meditation balances things by bringing you back to your true self rather than to the self that has been projected onto you by you know, the consumer society or the, the exposure to different kinds of things, which are not truly based on your inner, inner desire to grow and evolve. See, there is a force of life that is always pushing us towards more. And sometimes we identify this value of more through specific channels of our senses. And that can be colored by what we have been exposed to in terms of diet, food, in terms of movies, in terms of friends, in terms of opinions, in terms of media, and all of that. And we are thrown away in all of these possible directions. And that is like being on the surface of the ocean, tossed around by the waves or as a wave. What we need is to take a time back to the self and really know what is in our heart, what we really need. And therefore, in this case, transcendental meditation is doing two things. At the same time, it is removing the stresses and the strains that are the cause of 
unnecessary desires or goals that are not truly fulfilling or evolutionary. And at the same time, giving us the inner strengths and stability to be able to fulfill our desires, which are conducive to a better life and to have a goal that is broader and deeper and more inclusive. Thank you. As a student, I'm further curious about how to achieve better work-life balance. In medical school and in medicine, we have an extreme challenge in achieving our overall duties. Where does TM come into the equation on a daily basis and over time? See, rest is the basis for solid activity. And therefore, what TM gives us is the ability within a short time to remove the stress and the strain and the fatigue so that we can use our time better. That's why we say that actually the investment in time that you give to transcending, to going deep within yourself, is giving you much more return in actual time ability and effectiveness in time. So, you know, if you want to do something and you don't know how to do it and the mind is busy and is jumping around and you can't find the solution, then the time goes and goes and goes without being used effectively. But if you are clear in the mind and you can, within a short time, sort out what you need to do, then you are using time in a much better way. So time is really relative in that sense. One can be tired, spend hours to kind of remember something or sort out something or take care of something. And then one can make mistakes which require more time to correct it and all of that. Or one can be very clear and solid within and have a good ability to sort things out and then don't do mistakes and do things in a very effective way. Thank you. Hi, Dr. Nader. My name is Rachel Subnani. I'm also an M1 and I've been meditating for six months. I know I've experienced in my own practice of TM that I only really feel the effects that we talk about when I'm meditating regularly and twice a day. Do we know the mechanisms behind why there's such an extreme difference between students who meditate once a day or maybe not as regularly versus twice a day and regularly? It's a question of, you know, starting the day with freshness, then the day gives us an accumulation of fatigue and stress, and then clearing this out in the evening, you know, in the later part of the day, and then therefore having a good night rest, and then starting again. The night rest gives some beautiful feelings and clarity, but it requires deeper consciousness and expansion of consciousness in the morning and starting the day with freshness also because the night brings dreams and dreams have a cathartic effect also, but they can leave certain impressions even if we don't remember them. And the stress that is relieved during night sleep is not enough to remove certain tensions and fatigues and impressions and they stay with us as memories. And therefore, this routine of clearing up, starting the day well, which means we'll be less exposed to stress because there is greater resilience during the day. But then still some stress accumulates. And then you clean it up in the evening, clear it up, 
and then have a good night's sleep. And that's how a routine is established to give us the most effective results. And then in your paper, A Larger Lens, you mentioned that students who learn TM experience reduced anxiety, but those who meditated twice a day had all-encompassing results, including growth of empathy and compassion, increased cognitive clarity, improved recall and synthesis, better exam performance, improved clinical judgment and performance, and more productivity. What explains these comprehensive changes for meditating regularly? I think it's the same as we just discussed, and that when you meditate regularly, you have a chance to transcend more. You have the chance to go deeper. You know, you can have a meditation to just clean up the system uh, to some extent, but something remains. And then once you clean up the system and you come back to it, uh, to transcending, then you have a chance to expand your awareness. So consciousness expands, consciousness widens and broadens. So you have ability to concentrate with broad comprehension that settles in. And this has you know, effects on stabilizing coherence in the brain, stabilizing greater connectedness, greater wholeness between different parts of the brain and therefore a greater ability to expand one's consciousness rather than only cleaning up the system and then accumulating stress and then cleaning up again, which is good anyway, so better to meditate once than not to meditate at all. But uh, once you start cleaning up, you know, you will advance even to the deeper layers of your being and know yourself to be that ocean of being and that gives you uh, all these other benefits you know to say it in, in a few words hi dr Andrew. it's great to see you again my name is sebastian collage i first met you at a q a similar to like this current one four years ago when i was a first year medical student uh starting the uh course uh that you know dr brown like dr brown so kindly lead and I am currently now a fourth year medical student, and I've been practicing TM daily, twice a day during this time. And I really just want to take a moment to thank you, Dr. Brown, Duncan Brown, Dr. Bray, Dr. Gruner, Dr. Carroll, everyone who make this course and your TM here at Stretch possible. So I do want to point out that I've had a few responsibilities during my time, which not only included my my you know, medical training, but also my responsibility to my young family, which includes my wife and my two young sons. And, uh, and quite frankly, I could, I could not imagine having done that without TM. And I've decided to pursue a career in psychiatry. So my first question is, given the you know, high prevalence of mental health disorders, especially now you know, increasing in the younger population, I was wondering what role does TM play in treating and addressing mental health disorders and how can mental health professionals you know incorporate TM into their medical practice i think you know it's the same system the same reasoning and the basic answer is based on research rather than logical understanding of course we can discuss why it works and how it works. And that's what we've been doing in, in terms of the depressed 
going back to the self, removing stresses and strains that happen when we have a higher level of consciousness and restful alertness and physiology settles down. Because many of these issues that are mentally experienced, they are also recorded physically in the sense of actual chemicals, actual changes in the neurotransmitters. And so there is that deep connection between what is happening in our mental experience and how this is reflected and recorded in a physical level. And so when you actually dive deep into the self and rest very deeply and allow the brain to go back to its natural activity, then you are actually changing the mechanisms, the electrical activities, the neurotransmitters that are in the physiology. And that is what the research shows. The research shows that there are biological changes, physiological changes, electroencephalographic changes that accompany the improvement in the mood and feeling and anxiety. And the recent research that we've done, not only on patients, but which has been done before over many, many years, the repeated research on anxiety and depression and mental issues has been now also tried on doctors. And this maybe you're familiar with Heal the Healers program that has been implemented in more than 80 hospitals, I think, in New York alone. And there we have seen that even the doctors, the physicians who have exposed to high anxiety, stress and depression during the COVID period have had great improvements. So on all these levels, we can implement it. And for the mental issues, you know, there will still be maybe the need at the beginning, depending on the case, for proper care, proper counseling, in some cases, maybe to start with uh, some medication. But transcendental meditation as a routine can be added gradually, and the teachers know how to handle situations like that. And that naturally and spontaneously removes the anxieties and the fears and helps from many perspectives, directly through, as we said, improving the activities of chemical components and electrical components, electroencephalographic changes in the nervous system, but also by indirectly through, for example, giving better rest, better sleep quality, and all of these together they improve the anxiety, depression, and other mental issues. And also the sense of being stabilized within oneself. Many students or many people who are under stressful conditions, they lose the sense of connectedness with their inner self. And they are, as we said before, anxious, fearful, insecure, or depressed, tired, also because of their lack of ability to see possibilities in the future, to lack ability to be creative and overcome the problems that they have. And that creates a lot of anxiety or also depression. And so when you are clearer in your mind, when your stresses are less, then you are able to be creative and so that is also contributing to 
finding solutions and overcoming problems. Again, you know, when we are tired and there is some small thing that happens, it becomes like a mountain for us. But when we are clear and very awake inside, then we can solve the problems with greater creativity and greater potential. So there are ways we can apply it, certainly in a systematic way, either as a daily routine, as you all doing, or we can have specific programs for specific cases based on the case per case where we take a group of things together. We Maybe the diet is needed to be improved, maybe the daily routine, maybe some counseling, but TM is a very powerful do-it-yourself technique that can help as a fundamental part of the treatment. Thank you so much for that. On a more you know, personal level, during my own practice of TM over the past four years, you know, I've noticed feeling closer to myself and to others. And I think in this feeling closer and being you know, connected to others and feeling more able to help as well. I was wondering, how would you describe the purpose of transcendental meditation? And in light of the fact that all of us lead very different lives. The ultimate purpose of transcendental meditation is to know yourself, to rise in higher states of consciousness and be able to use your full potential. Now, how does it do it? It does it through steps. Those steps, you know, include first removal of stress and strain. So removal of the obstacles and then expanding consciousness, expanding the awareness. And so that is a field of more than just stress release. Stress release is fine. It's actually a side benefit and it's necessary at the beginning. And it's necessary all the time because we always accumulate some tiredness, some stress, and we need always to rest, to sleep, and in this case, to meditate deeply. But to experience consciousness from a profound level of clarity and expansion adds to the sense of the self not being limited by those preconceived ideas or ideas that impose on us a certain vision of ourself. And so that is why we say it helps in higher states of consciousness. See, in the ancient traditions, they talk about enlightenment. They talk about liberation. And liberation is ultimately to be free from the boundaries of the object of perception. Whenever you look at an object, whatever it is, a flower, a person, a situation, a memory, it overtakes your consciousness. And therefore you lose the sense of inner being, of inner self, of inner stability, which we, by the way, experience when we transcend. Now, as you keep transcending and acting, transcending and acting, and both are necessary, the sense of self as a stable state of being remains with us more and stays with us over a longer period of time until ultimately we never lose the transcendence, even when we are acting in the outside. So imagine that you have that field of transcendence always with you, 
even when you are acting on the outside. So these moments that you get during transcendental meditation become a permanent state and you're acting from always that sense of fullness and wholeness. We call this a state of cosmic consciousness. We give it a name. And that is really what ultimately is part of the highest contribution of transcendental meditation. And that is why it's really different in many ways than just stress release and finding tricks to be able to, you know, deal with things or have a little bit more of some mindful time and all of that. It really is the development of higher states of consciousness, which makes us all stay with it in a spontaneous and natural way. I'm back, Dr. Nader. I was wondering how you've seen TM impact people during times of conflict or war. It's, again, a very powerful technique to clear up the system because, you know, during war, during conflict, during even COVID or something, there is a kind of traumatic situation. We call it traumatic stress, and then we can have post-traumatic stress syndromes and disease. And during war, you get subjected to something that is huge in terms of challenge to your perception of life, to your perception of fairness, of justice, of wholeness, of security. And all of these things that threaten the sense of continuity, the sense of protection, the sense of justice, and all the values that we grow up learning and wanting. And so the conflicts create those challenges, and those challenges can impact our perception and color our vision and can lead to stress and strain. Of course, they are stress and strain. They can lead to anxiety, depression, and all of that. What TM does is, again, cleans up the memory, you know, allows us to forget these things, allows us to know that there is something deeper in life. Because whatever we expose ourselves to becomes stronger in our life. If you repeatedly are exposed to stress and strain, to fear, to fatigue, to anxiety due to phenomena and occurrences in society that scare you or that give you insecurity, then these become stronger in your life. And now you are exposed to them and they are harder. They are more deeply ingrained and imprinted in your nervous system. When during transcending, you expose yourself to a softer, silent, quiet, peaceful moments, then these moments become stronger in your life. So that is how you have two things. You have the cleaning up of the memory of the stress and the situation, which is very important. But you have also the exposure to this pure, silent inner being. And this greater exposure to this aspect becomes stronger in your life. So what becomes stronger in your life? Is it the events on the outside? or the inner value of inner peace and harmony. And so this repeated exposure to the transcending, even if you don't fully transcend, to those going deeper and deeper into yourself, stabilizes that sense of security, that sense of peace and harmony. And this is not happening on an intellectual level. You don't have to try to convince yourself. 
it's really a question of exposure. You expose yourself to something, it creates an impact on you. You expose yourself to something not so fulfilling, scary, then this is what remains on you. You expose yourself to silent peace, harmony, inner sense of well-being, then that stays with you. So this is really to say again, whatever you expose yourself to gets an imprint and becomes stronger in you. And that is why at least a few times a day, besides the stress release and all the benefits that we talked about, exposing yourself to that level without even having to intellectually analyze it or anything gives you that inner stability and strength and ability to be more resilient. Thank you. How might we be able to apply these results in a plausible way, understanding the serious limitations of wartime? We have to continue on a personal level to expose ourselves to our inner silent peace and accept that this is also reality, which is actually the ultimate reality. And surface reality is the less natural, less real reality. It's this the other reality of war and strain and all of that is a reality of ignorance and acting on the basis of ignorance and acting on the basis of fear of the other and trying to destroy the other or being afraid to be destroyed. And that is in the ignorance of the true nature of life, which is an unbounded ocean of being. And if you are the ocean, then you know, the waves can be more balanced. The waves can be part of your inner reality and you transcend just being tossed around by the waves because you are on the stable level of the ocean. And then you have this wider perception and perspective and are able to be on the experience level more strong and stable, but also on the action level more creative in finding solutions that are of broader perspective, of broader understanding, and more embracing, not only in space of inclusiveness and diversity and accepting others, but also in time, in terms of long-term perspective for life on Earth, you know, the environment, artificial intelligence, there are so many things that are going on. And we need creativity, we need stability, we need higher consciousness in order to be able to direct all these means that are coming up, such as genetic engineering and artificial intelligence and use of the environment, direct them in a way that are most helpful for all people and use all people's contributions in a positive way rather than on the level of being afraid of one another and finding that the only way is to destroy the other in order to be living in peace, you know? And so that requires stability, clarity, creativity. And this TM, this simple TM does that on an individual level. And again, on a collective level, we have seen results in terms of crime reduction, conflict reduction. Hey, Dr. Nader, back again. So we learned from Duncan and Carla that there's been large-scale group meditations 
and that's thought to have a larger global impact. I was wondering if you could please talk about the science behind that and why we believe that these one location large scale meditations have a, a bigger impact. It is really the what we can say the coherence effect or super radiance, we have used that terminology. And the science behind that is really based on the understanding of consciousness as being primary. So, you know, to go back to the analogy of the ocean, if consciousness is the ocean and you can act from the level of the ocean itself, from the bottom of the ocean, from the depths of the ocean, you can produce more effects than being on the surface level of the waves. And so the whole understanding of the mechanism of action, that is based on what we can call action at a distance. And action at a distance used to be thought impossible and to be uh, unrealistic. And there is a minimum amount of exchange that has to happen on an electro you know, magnetic level or whatever other kind of forces that are in the classical perspective of physics and the classical perspective of nature. But science has discovered that there is a connectedness between everything. And this is a phenomenon called entanglement, where things happen at a distance and they are immediate. They are not waiting for, let's say, the speed of light and all of that. And that is because, again, Consciousness is primary. This is my understanding of the mechanism of action. And if you act from the level of consciousness, you can produce an effect that is beyond the limits of the surface value. Again, surface action on the level of the surface waves of the ocean or from the depths of the ocean. Or in physics, if you like, you can call it from the unified field of all the laws of nature, which I know you have all been introduced to as part of learning transcendental meditation, that there is actually from physics perspective, a field which is the source of all the surface values. And if you act from the level of the field, you can produce an effect that is beyond time and space. And therefore you can produce an effect that is non-local and again, non-locality is a scientific reality in physics. So it's not some impossible phenomenon. Elementary particles have a probability of being anywhere with different probabilities. So they're not localized until there is a phenomenon that makes the what they call the collapse of the wave function, which then makes the particle fall in one place. So entanglement, which means connectedness, over distance, beyond just the limitations of exchanging information, non-locality, and this is the phenomenon of consciousness. If consciousness is primary, then you act from that deep level of consciousness, then you can produce the effect. Now, the other part of the question is why many people doing this together in one place is necessary. And that is a phenomenon also we experience in physics. For example, if you want to produce laser light, you take the regular light, now the light that lights your room or my room, and make the waves of the individual photons work in coherence. 
and then you have a laser effect, a laser light. And in order to produce this, you need only a small percentage of these photons to be in coherence. And all the other photons get what we call entrained or they get drawn in and they start also behaving in that way. So what we're saying is that when a small number of people, a certain percentage, in this case, the square root of 1% of the population, start being in coherence together. And we have seen this collective neuroscience coherence where when one brain is in coherence and it's connected to another person talking to them or working together along the same wavelengths, if you like, the same kind of desires and thoughts, then their brains start actually becoming coherent together. So all of this creates an effect that is leading to a group of people creating this effect. And if the effect reaches a critical level, then the effect is worldwide. And how is it? Again, because consciousness is an ocean and the ocean is beyond space limitations. It's non-local. And therefore you're acting from a level which is not the classical surface level of action where particles are acting with each other and they have to wait until time goes by until this happens and there is space that have to be. So it's not on an electromagnetic level. It's not on a gravitational level. It's not on the surface values. It's on the more deep values. You could say on the unified field value on the quantum field level where there is non-locality and entanglement. And when the phenomenon is produced, it leads to a calming effect, a holistic calming effect in society, which makes people start thinking clearer. When we think clearer ourselves, we make better decisions if we are rested. When a group of us think clearer because they are also rested, their group decision is better. So, when this phenomenon is created on a social level, on a national level, or on an international level, literally the leaders, the people have less stress because the atmosphere is less strained and less stressful. And then they start thinking more positively. They start thinking more clearly. And therefore, this is how the effect happens. You know, you can say, well, there is a criminal walking in the street. If the atmosphere is stressful, the criminal will be more inclined to do his crime or her crime, whatever. But if maybe the atmosphere, the ambience, the feeling is rested and calm, then the person might change their mind and say, why am I doing this? I can find better solution and expose myself less to harming others and harming myself and getting into prison. So they start thinking differently. And that's how the effect happens and the crime reduces. And this has been repeatedly shown through this program that we have tried again and again with certain percentages of people. When you reach the critical number, the effect is actually happening. Great, thank you so much. Dr. Nader, thank you so much for being with us. We deeply appreciate all of your insight Thank you for having me. It's wonderful. The questions were very deep. It's a joy to be with you and congratulations again for having this program. It's great that the students are benefiting from it. 
Wonderful. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.